Well, good morning. Um, are you hearing me okay? Okay. Um, yes, so uh, we don't know any of you here except for Jeff. Uh, Jeff has been a long-time um, first supporter of ours. The last time we saw, what did you say, was it Elam the graduation? Yeah. From when I graduated from Elam Bible College 29 years ago. Um, so Jeff has stayed in touch faithfully all those years, prayed faithfully for us all through those years, and it was, it's a privilege and a joy to come and uh, meet up with him again and to connect with his friends and uh, fa church family. Uh, isn't it wonderful to be together? to worship our Lord. This, uh, would, my, my task today is to talk, uh, give you an overview of uh, 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus, and the book of Philemon. Uh, and let me just read you something from uh, the, the book of 1 Timothy. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. What more do I need to say? <laughs> Amen. Amen. Wonderful. Now to the King eternally immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm going to ask Janice to just introduce us a bit more um, so that you get to know us a little and uh, our history. Uh, we have connections not only with Jeff but with Elam actually over many years. Um, John said I, I was once an ECI minister and I'm not now. It wasn't because I misbehaved, at least not that I'm aware of. Um, but Janice will allude to that uh, as she tells us, tells you a little bit about us. So I grew up in Liverpool and was part of the Liverpool Elam Church. Um, and when the massacre of Elam missionaries happened in 1978, um, I was at university and the response that, that came from my heart, it's not, it, I have to say it's God, not me, was I'm willing to replace one of those missionaries. Um, and to cut a long story short, four years later, in 1982, I ended up going out and working at the Elam Mission Station, teaching. I was a teacher. Um, and whilst in Zimbabwe, I would come into town every so often and go to um, the church that Peter Griffiths was the main elder of. He was an Elam missionary there. And um, that's where I met Dudley. Um, he was working as a lawyer in Harare. And um, Peter Griffiths married us, actually, in Zimbabwe. <laughs> Um, and um, I know at least one person here who's read the book um, about, uh, that Steve Griffiths, his son, wrote recently about the massacre, and Steve Griffiths um, has been a longtime friend of ours, and we actually worked together in Mozambique for a number of years. So we've had a long history with Elam, and as Ali said, he was an ECI minister. But the work continues, and we praise God for that, and, and God is still at work and doing wonderful things. Anyway, so Mead, this uh, famous anthropologist lady, uh, explained that the animal kingdom, in the animal kingdom, if you break your leg, you die, right? You cannot run from aggression. You can't get to the water, to the river to get water to drink. You can't hunt for food. You are meat for prowling beasts. No animal survives a broken leg long enough for the bone to, the bone to heal. So... A broken femur that has healed is evidence that someone has taken time to stay with the one who fell, bound up the wound, carried the person to safety, tended the person through recovery, helped that person. Uh, and helping someone else through difficulty, Mead said, is where civilization starts. That's food for thought, isn't it? Now, the Apostle Paul in uh, 1 Timothy says... Uh, in three verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 15, he says, I write to you these instructions, Timothy, 
so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. So in these so-called pastoral epistles, Timothy and Titus particularly, we get a description of what the church looks like, what sets it apart from a social club or any other organization. What, what's, what makes it to be different, where it starts to be different from any other uh, gathering of people on earth. And yes, central to it are works of love and obedience that are the outworking of faith. That's where church starts. That's how we tell here's a church. And the, the, the pastoral epistles, as they are called, uh, are, 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 um, give the, the closest depiction of church that we have. Fleshed out, of course, in the rest of the New Testament. The two letters to Timothy and the one to Titus were written by Paul to two of his young converts who had followed him on many of his missionary journeys and whom he had established as leaders of churches. Although they were addressed by Paul to his young friends in the ministry, the message is as much to the churches themselves as it is to to them. Paul's letter to Philemon where I come from, we said Philemon, but Philemon, I think you understand, right? Paul's letter to Philemon is the only personally addressed private letter in the New Testament canon. It tells a story, as you know, of a runaway slave, Onesimus, who comes to faith probably while in prison alongside the Apostle Paul, who led him then to Christ. And having run away from his master, Philemon, in the town of Colossae, now Saul, Paul, Saul, Paul sends him back to Colossae to be with Philemon once again as a saved slave. Now it's worth noting, just as an aside, that all the New Testament letters, including these ones, were composed in the context and the crucible of suffering uh, that was um, the world at that time in its attitude towards Christianity. Um, so, theologian uh, Martin Kaler once said that mission is the mother of theology. As the gospel advanced from Jerusalem all the way to Rome and Gentiles began to be added to the church, theology had to be applied to new situations. You're going to study theology in Edinburgh. Uh, great, because theology should be a dynamic thing. New situations face the church over and over again. And missions, that's what the Apostle Paul and his friends were doing. Missions gave birth to theology. And so a virtuous circle emerged where mission birthed theology and in turn theology promoted mission. That's how it should work anyway. So we need to read these letters with, the, with that mindset. Indeed, as you read the New Testament epistles as a whole, we see that the organizing function of the church was missional. The whole reason the church was set up the way it was was to equip the saints for the work of ministry, Ephesians 4.12, to serve one another, to serve the lost by reaching out to them in love and compassion, to build the church in numbers, to build the body of Christ, to build up the body of Christ in maturity. Now the consensus among scholars is that the letters 1 Timothy and Titus were written after Paul was released from his first imprisonment. Remember, he was sent um, from Caesarea Philippi after he appealed to Caesar. He was sent all the way to Rome to be on trial. Uh, he appealed there to, to Caesar. 
and he, that was his first imprisonment. So uh, he probably wrote that this, this, these two letters, 1 Timothy and, and Titus, sometime between A.D. 64 and 67, after he had been released his first time from prison. Some authorities think he wrote from Macedonia, and it's clear that he wrote these letters to encourage and assist his young friends. The theme of 1 Tim- Timothy is order in the local church and how the local church should be governed. This is in contrast to the epistle of the Ephesians, for example, where the church is the mystical body of Christ, the invisible church. And here in 1 Timothy, it is the local assembly of believers organized for a common missional purpose. And that would be true also for uh, 2 Timothy and and Titus. The central theme of of Titus uh, is the unbreakable link there is between faith and practice. Belief and behavior. Romans call that kind of faith obedient faith. The obedience that comes from faith. We are justified by faith. But our faith is justified by our works. Did you get that? Yes. The truth is the, this truth is the basis for Paul's criticism of false teaching, his instruction on Christian living, and the standards he sets for church leaders in the epistle. Let me just comment a little bit on, on Timothy and Titus as missionaries. While little is known of either of these men, uh, there seems to have been quite a contrast between them, just looking at the letters themselves. Titus seems to have been a stronger man, both physically and spiritually, since Paul expresses less concern for him and for his welfare. Titus was probably more mature and possessed a stronger personality than Timothy. So we can glean from this that no particular personality type is favored in church leadership or in pioneering missionary work. Character is more important than giftings or personality. God raises up a timid Timothy to give leadership to his flock in one place. He raises up tenacious Titus to do the same in another place. Timothy, moreover, was a Jew who was circumcised by Paul. But Titus was a Gentile whom Paul refused to circumcise, according to Galatians 3, 2 verse 3. Paul circumcised one young missionary and refused to circumcise another. This underlines the truth that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation, Galatians 6 verse 15. What qualifies anyone for church membership, for church leadership, to be a missionary, is not religious or educational or class background, but merely the fact of having been born again into a new kingdom, being made someone new by the power of the Holy Spirit. But Paul's decision to circumcise one and not circumcise another missionary also underlines the strategic importance of being sensitive in our mission endeavors, whether locally or cross-culturally, not to upset or alienate people unnecessarily. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. Thus Paul circumcises 
one of his apprentice missionaries because he judged that Timothy would still have an important ministry among the Jews. And he leaves Titus uncircumcised because he felt that his ministry among the pagan Cretans would not be helped and may even, may even have been hindered by making him undergo that right. As missionaries, we were constantly asking ourselves, what is it about our Western cultural habits that the local people will find difficult to accept and might become an impediment to us reaching them with the good news that Jesus Christ came to save sinners? What are the things that uh, can be barriers between us? In Muslim settings where we have worked, we have abstained from alcohol and pork meat, for example. Our ladies dress modestly. We're careful to treat God's book, the Bible. We don't put it on the floor. We treat it with reverence. Put it on the highest shelf in, in, in our home. Um, why upset people unnecessarily in the process of living out the gospel in front of them? is the question we need to ask ourselves. Every local church should ask itself the same question as it reaches out to each new generation or to the cultures that have come to the UK from all over the world. What is it about our church culture? What is it about our own Western culture that makes it difficult for unbelievers to hear our message? What can we do to ensure that it is the message of the gospel alone that offends people, not our cultural habits or our cultural behavior? Now, 2 Timothy and the book of Philemon were both probably written during Paul's final imprisonment in Rome before his execution. So he had two periods of imprisonment. 1 Timothy and Titus were written during, after the first one. And now he's in prison, an old man. The deathbed statement of any individual has an importance that is not attached to other remarks that are made during, during life. This is what lends extra significance to, to Timothy and to Philemon. To Timothy in particular is his final message. It has a note of sadness that you don't find in the other letters by Paul. Nevertheless, there is this overtone of triumph. I have fought the good, fa- I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Won't it be wonderful to draw near to the end of our earthly pilgrimage and be able to say the same. I have fought the fight. I have run the race. I have kept the faith. A large theme in 2 Timothy is that of desertion. Apostasy is another word for it. People deserting Paul. And it is suggested abandoning the faith as well. Paul describes a great apostasy at the end of time. A great desertion in the last days. People would have a form of godliness, he says, but deny its power. The last days referred to had already begun in, at the time of Paul and Timothy. So Paul instructs Timothy to have nothing to do with people like that who are already around um, and making their presence felt in the church. But as these last days, this period of last days has continued, it seems that there will come about an apostasy which will seem to blot out the faith almost entirely. Will seem to. This is in harmony with the startling question Jesus asks in Luke 18, verse 8. When the Son of Man comes, in other words, at the end of time, will he find faith on earth? Or, he says also in Matthew 24, verse 12, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. Above all, 
guard your heart. For it is the wellspring of life, the book of Proverbs tells us. Guard our hearts, in other words, from becoming lukewarm and then cold and then faithless, that we will be able to say with the Apostle Paul, I have fought the fight. I've run the race. I've kept the faith. Let me, fam- let me focus for the next few minutes on the letter of Philemon and draw out some lessons for us as we engage in mission. The story behind the epistle uh, Philemon was, in, as you know, on the dark background of slavery. There were approximately 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire in a popula- total population of not more than 120, 130 million, they say. A slave was property, bought and sold, families split up if that was commercially advantageous to the owners of the slaves. Now, Christianity doesn't condone slavery. While the New Testament gives instructions to slaves and masters about their behavior within that relationship, even while doing that, it sowed the seeds that eventually led to the abandonment of slavery as an acceptable practice by Christians. This book of Philemon is the book that is cited most often, and rightly so, I believe, to show that Paul was sowing the seeds to destroy the whole institution of slavery from within. Paul spoke of the new relationship between master and slave in other epistles, but here he demonstrates how it should work in practice. These men, Onesimus, the slave, and Philemon, the master, belonging to two different classes in the Roman Empire, possibly hating each other and hurting each other, are now brothers in Christ, and they are to act like it. Paul sends this now converted slave back to his converted master Philemon and says, I'm sending him back to you as a brother. Honor him. That kind of spiritual dynamic is intended to undo the system from the inside out. And that's how the kingdom of God works. In an individual life or in a community, transformed by the gospel. It's a long, slow, painful process. It is like a mustard seed, Jesus said. One of the smallest seeds of garden plants that grows slowly, imperceptibly. You don't notice it until suddenly it's big enough to shelter the birds of the air. Suddenly, it seems. It becomes a presence that can't be ignored and people sit up and take notice. When Operation Mobilization field leader a man by the name of Yusuf and his wife moved back to his native Algeria in 1988 to establish OM ministry there. A revival among the Berber Kabile people was already starting. He said that before 1981 there were very few believers. But looking back, from, looking back in 2017, he knew of believers in every one of the 2,400 Kabile villages and towns and cities in the northern part of Algeria. In July 1981, the early Kabila church, 40 to 50 believers at the most, started a two-year process of praying and fasting, memorizing 365 verses, one about fear, one for each day of the year. A new Kabila ministry broadcast, radio ministry broadcast, broadcasting sermons and teaching across the region was begun. And a church in one of the Kabila towns led by an Algerian Swiss couple began a wide literature distribution campaign in villages and showed Jesus films, the Jesus film in, in, in many cafes. Simple faith spread among the Kabila, sparked by miraculous signs and wonders. 
and developed through prayer and fasting. Since Algeria at this time was closed to missionaries, the Algerian church couldn't depend on anyone else but God for during its formative years. The, the Kabila people's boldness, their lack of fear, contributed to a rapid revival. They lived out their faith openly. What, ha what has to be remembered in this is that up until the early 1980s, there had been the slow, painful, patient efforts of scores of missionaries bringing about through their prayers, their teaching, their preaching, their compassion ministries, their godly example, not sudden revolutionary change, but gradual, imperceptible growth and transformation that became the foundation for the awakening in thousands of lives that we are seeing today among the Kabyle of Algeria. Gospel work, whether on our doorstep or at a great distance from us, is often long, slow, painful work. Shortcuts and quick fixes are for another realm, not for the gospel realm. Talking about painful work, the very first verse of Philemon says, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus. The Apostle Paul uses this term here and elsewhere almost as a badge of pride. About two years into our time in, in, um, in Morocco, I was privileged to meet Pastor Robert. Are we ready for Pastor Robert? Uh, is he there? There he is. Not, can't, you can just see him. As I sat in his salon during our first meeting, he pulled out a folder filled with certificates from various correspondence and internet Bible studies he had done uh, in theology, Christian life, and so on. But at the top of that pile of certificates was a certificate of release from prison. There it was, along with his other certificates, which he was showing me, the one of which he was most proud. It reminds me of the Apostle Paul's words in Romans 5 where he talks of boasting in the hope of the glory of God and boasting in the sufferings. The sufferings that produce perseverance, that produce character and produce hope. Yes, glorying in his sufferings. The fact is there is no gospel advance that is not accompanied by hardship and suffering. And Pastor Robert had captured Paul's attitude by showing off to me his prison certificate, rejoicing in his sufferings, glorying in them because they advanced the gospel of hope in his own life and the lives of others. So here he is. Um, he's smiling. He's pointing at a, at a symbol uh, on, painted on the outside of an apartment where the church that he was le leading um, uh, was meeting. And that symbol, does anyone know what that symbol is? It's, yeah, did you say? Yes, exactly. It's, it's the Arabic letter N for Nazarene, Nisrani. And uh, it was used by ISIS in the campaign, their campaigns in Syria and Iraq to mark the homes of Christians who were usually uh, set, set aside for special treatment. And, um, but here, here he is, and, and, and uh, uh, he sent me this photo when we were back in the UK and uh, I WhatsApped with him about it and said, so, so what, what happened? You know, you're being threatened by ISIS types. Oh, he says, um, we've decided to move. I said, where are you moving to? He said, uh, downtown next to the police station. Smiley face, smiley face. <laughs> so, I, I, you know, his, his thinking is, you know, if ISIS aren't... Um, if ISIS, we might as well move next to the police station because the if the police are not going to arrest us, they might as well protect us from ISIS. 
So that's where the congregation is now. Uh, this man, next slide, Matt, please. Um, this is a, a, a screenshot taken of him. Um, he, lit- he, he, he preaches the gospel from the rooftops, which in, in today's language is YouTube, right? This is, this is him on YouTube, a screenshot. He's preaching from the Word of God, from uh, 1 John 2, 15 to 16. And he's uh, sharing the gospel, and he's sharing from God's Word. He's encouraging the saints. And his number comes up, telephone number. And he gets calls from all over Morocco to abuse him. He also gets calls from people uh, who have been touched by his message and who want to find out more. Because of his bold witness and his willingness to face persecution, numbers of people are coming to faith. Next slide, buddy. Um, yep, keep going. So this man was a, a prominent um, religious leader, um, fundamentalist, and uh, got connected through Pastor Robert because of his bold witness. And next slide, here he is being baptized on, our, on the main public beach uh, in the city where we lived. Now, you can't see it too well, but the mountain in the distance has three words written on it. Ilawatan Malik, which means God, country, and king. But that's not our God. So here is, a, this is a very subversive picture. Beneath, under the shadow of those words, the king and the whole country are to uphold Islam and the God of Islam. Um, here we have a man being baptized in the name of the God of Jesus, our God, Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful? Uh, so God is, God is at work through this man's bold witness. Another one, Matt. Uh, here's another man who came to his door uh, with his head bowed, pleading for forgiveness. He didn't know who it was. Then he lifted up his head and he recognized him as a, as a, as a, a former imam who had persecuted him relentlessly. And this man also has become a Christian. So God is at work uh, in, in, and through, uh, what, uh, in and through his servants in, in Morocco, few as they are. A number of years ago, a missionary society, next slide, buddy, uh, known as Frontiers, renowned for sending workers to the hardest Muslim areas of the world, carried an ad on the back of the International Journal of Frontier Missions, which went along the following lines. Blasting cold, blistering heat, career prospects zero, prison prospects good, early death a possibility, recognition from peers unlikely, frontiers, come and join us. If you can embrace, embrace suffering, join the mission enterprise. It will not be comfortable, but it will be rewarding. Why will it be rewarding? Well, let me tell you. The primary purpose, and I can tell you from this book, Philemon. The primary purpose of this letter in Philemon is not just to tell us about a converted slave returning to his converted master and everybody then living happily ever after. No. It's to reveal Christ's love for us and what he did for us before God in pleading our case, in interceding for us. This letter contains, this letter of Philemon contains one of the finest, finest illustrations of the biblical notion of substitution. In verse 18, Paul says, If he, that is Onesimus, has done you, Philemon, any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. There we can hear echoes of Christ agreeing to take our place and to have all our sin put on him, imputed to him. 
God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, one Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians tells us. He took our place in death, but he gives us his place in life. Paul writes in verse 17, So if you consider me a partner, uh, 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 Philemon, welcome him, welcome Onesimus, as you would welcome me. In other words, we have the standing of Christ before God, if, or, or we have nothing at all. He took our hell and gives us his heaven, so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. Onesimus, an unprofitable runaway slave, was to be received as Paul, the great apostle, would have been received in the home of Philemon. We, enemies of God, and under his wrath, are to be received in heaven just as Jesus himself is received. It is so rewarding to communicate this message of hope to people without hope, irrespective of whether or not they receive it. The more we share it with others, the more precious it becomes to us. And when someone receives it, the joy knows no bounds. You can sense the joy in this letter from Paul. Joy that matches the joy in heaven when angels throw a party at the conversion of just one sinner. This one individual, a slave on the lowest rung of the social hierarchy, mattered to Paul so much that he took the time to share the gospel with him there in prison. He discipled him. And then he writes a letter overflowing with love for him that has become part of our New Testament because God wants us to recognize that each and every lost soul matters to him and was worth giving himself, giving his son for. And if to under, as if to underline this, church tradition actually notes that this same Onesimus probably became a great bishop in the church in Ephesus 20 years later, from slave to brother to bishop. Yes, it will often be very uncomfortable to share this message, to go to the least accessible, hardest to reach people in the world, but it is worth it. It is worth it a hundred times. It is worth it. We will find in those places that God has gone ahead of us to prepare individuals in whose hearts He is at work. There we go. Here are two individuals we found when we set up our center. One of the, the lady on the... So, so this picture, let me just say, we had a, we had a number of people on our team. Uh, a couple of them decided to get married. And this was their engagement party. So this was the photo booth. Now these are, these are clients of ours from our center. The lady on the right, her name, we call her Wendy in our newsletters. Uh, she came into our center. I was taking her on a tour. We got to our library with about a thousand books. And she said, oh, sir, the, you've got so many wonderful books here. And this I was not expecting. I was not expecting this question. Nobody in, uh, in Morocco would expect to get this question from anybody. Sir, do you have a King James copy of the Bible in your library? And I said, no, but I, I'm sure we can organize you one. So we did, and an NIV, and we started reading it. A few months later, one of, her co one of our colleagues went... I was meeting with her and said, uh, how's it going? How, have, you read, you know, have you read anything of the Bible? Where are you in your pilgrimage? Oh, she says, I finished the Bible and I need to get baptized. <laughs> that, was, that was Wendy. Uh, um, Harold, uh, also one of our clients, was um, very uh, active in our center, came to our center a lot uh, to, to improve his English. Um, 
And we, ha we have a host of people coming through, short-term people coming to help our people learn English. Uh, and so many of them were connecting with Harold and sharing with him the gospel. Then last year, he realized, um, as Ramadan began, and as in, in contradiction of Ramadan rules, he ate his breakfast, he went out on the street, he looked around, he says, I'm a Christian. I just had a meal in the, you know, the beginning of Ramadan. He suddenly realized that he was born again. And... Uh, it was, it was been so wonderful to walk with people like this. God has gone ahead of God goes ahead of us to these places. Uh, this picture, the next one, Maddie. Um, so just before, um, yeah, about this time last year, actually, uh, we were contacted. Um, the lady uh, towards the end of the, the, that line of people was one of our students. Uh, she had uh, came to Janison uh, about uh, six months before this picture. Uh, and said, uh, Janice, I've, I've left Islam. I just want you to know that. Uh, but in that interim, she had joined a Facebook group of atheists. Now, atheists in our country um, are people who have left Islam. They haven't, it's not that they've stopped believing in God. They've just left Islam. They, they call themselves atheists. We're searching. And uh, uh, that lady at the end there, uh, second from the end, uh, in the meantime became a Christian through one of our group and uh, started sharing with all her atheist friends. And here they are. Uh, she had uh, prepared them, and they wanted to come and study and learn about Jesus. And this was our first study together um, with a group of atheists, almost Christians. And some of them have become Christians since then. God goes ahead of us. I want to close with a short video, if it's uh, working, Maddie. Is that okay? All right. Um, if, it's not, if it doesn't work, it's okay. Um, we, it's, it's, it's just um, highlighting the, the need of the unreached groups in, in the world. Uh, in Africa, which is the part of the world that we're particularly concerned for, there are about 3,000 distinct people groups with their own language, culture, and so on. Uh, praise God, over the past 100, 150 years, over 2,000 of those groups have churches amongst them, or, 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 or you know, have thriving churches among them for the most part. And um, there are just uh, 970 groups left that, that have no gospel witness among them. This talks a little bit about that on a worldwide scale. Is it working? Sure, sure. Okay, you can, have, uh, you can see it there. So that, that's what we're about. We're about um, Janice and I. That's our heart is to see the gospel established amongst the unreached groups in our world and particularly in Africa. Uh, that's our particular burden. But, you know, there are, there are thousands of unreached groups out there. And uh, we just want to leave you with a challenge. If you would like to get more information about how to pray for the unreached, this video is a great resource in helping um, us finish the task among the unreached of our world. Thank you very much for, your, for the opportunity to share.